it's important to define things like this explicitly. So saying, hey, we have short toes, if somebody's going to solve a problem or has a good solution, it doesn't matter where it comes from. At what level of the company, what function, whatever, we're happy to get the best possible solution from whatever avenue it comes from. So I think defining that is really important. And then living that definition is the most important thing. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the growing team here at Levels. We're a venture-funded startup backed by more than a thousand of our community members and some of the best VCs in the game, including Andreessen Horowitz. On this podcast, we talk about everything we do. We share the learnings about our culture and what we're building along the way. This is Inside the Company. When collaborating across a team, it's easy to start feeling maybe a little bit territorial. That's natural. It happens in companies, especially a lot of big ones. Hey, you're treading in my territory. At Levels, we've got this cultural value called short toes. It's very much borrowed from Darren Murph and the team over at GitLab. Essentially, it means to remove or strip away ego when it comes to things like decision making, things like working together, and really focus on solving the problems at hand. Well, this is counterintuitive for some roles when essentially the way that you progress in that career, especially in big companies, especially in things like professional services, is by somewhat being territorial, by somewhat taking ownership over the things and saying, hey, I'm the one who did this. It's very individual focus versus team focus. Well, a while back, Riley Walker, head of finance, and Zach Henderson, head of legal, the two of them were solving a problem around reissuing and repricing equity for team members. Essentially, they worked on the problem together, and at the end of the day, Riley said, hey, Zach, why don't you take this one on? And Zach was sort of surprised, and it somewhat took him back, but he also has his value of short toes. He very much anchors on it, and he thought, this is funny. This is kind of against the world we grew up in, that being professional services. Anyway, it led to this conversation where they really dug into how Levels culture is different and special when it comes to problem solving. Essentially, everyone's working together to solve the things that need to be solved and stripping away ego at all costs. Anyway, no need to wait. Here's a conversation with Zach and Riley. So for a bit of context, Levels was in the middle of going through repricing of the uh, equity that we'd already issued. Uh, in short, what that meant was that we were delivering some good news to our employees. Uh, many of our employees have options that they are able to uh, exercise so that they can actually own equity in the company. And when you exercise equity, you have to pay what's called the strike price. The strike price is typically tied to the fair market value of the company at the time that it's issued. And because of some of the market dynamics, the fair market value of our company actually changed in a way that was favorable to our employees. So Riley put in a whole bunch of work uh, to make some changes on the back end that ultimately will allow our employees to exercise their equity uh, for a lower strike price than they could have before, putting more cash in their pockets when they choose to exercise. And Riley and I were going back and forth during this time, and he reached out to me to see if I wanted to be the one to deliver the good news. A totally good faith move on Riley's part, but also something that probably was rooted in our background, him and me, in professional services, which is be very careful not to step on anyone's toes. Uh, I passed the ball back to Riley and said, man, you put in all the work on this. You should go ahead and go for it. I'm very short toes on this. Uh, and that dynamic really led to a conversation of, um, you know, Riley and me reflecting on how different working in the startup space and specifically at a place like Levels is compared to like the very hierarchical world of professional services. Uh, so Riley, I think the best place to get started is... Uh, Tell us about short toes. What does short toes mean? Maybe I'll, maybe I'll take a little step back, Zach, and say, I think one of the things that's great about short toes and, and great about short toes in startups is it allows you to focus on purely solving the needs of the business or business problem. So we're trying to um, make positive changes in the world, build a business, and that's very hard to do. 
And when you have short toes, you can focus 100% of your thought process and effort on uh, building a company and solving company problems versus solving um, solving a peripheral problem like, how do I get buy-in on these things or something? So you, when you have short toes, you're able to have a culture of assuming everyone has good at intent and assuming everybody is focused on solving those key business problems. Yeah, I, I love that framing, the idea of assuming good intent. You know, it's probably true to say that any really effective workplace culture um, has as sort of either a stated or maybe an unstated value uh, assuming good intent. It's not really possible to have great workplace dynamics when uh, you are left to question the intent of the people you're working with every time they say something that might rub you the wrong way. You know, what that ultimately can turn into if people aren't assuming good faith, you know, I mean, as I think we both probably experienced is people become more deferential in some circumstances than it, than it makes sense for them to be, or they, they can be unintentionally obsequious. Uh, the dynamics can get really funny very quickly where people are tripping over themselves to be kind. And, uh, and yet people are often afraid that, uh, what's actually going on in everyone's heads does not come from a place of being uh, a good teammate. So short toes, I love, and I love the idea of assuming good faith. So, uh, you know, I think one thing that we were both struck by is kind of how different this particular culture is from what is normal in the professional services. You know, speaking of my own experience, I didn't spend an enormous amount of time in big law firm culture. Uh, I spent some time in it and I have lots of friends and colleagues uh, for whom that's, that's their world. And it really is interesting. I mean, it's at least on the legal side, it's so hierarchical. Uh, there is so much risk in saying things in the wrong uh, way and kind of getting yourself into trouble. Riley, I'd, I'd love to hear a bit about your perspective on that. Maybe maybe we can trade stories or thoughts on, you know, what's yeah. like being there versus here. <laughs> yeah, I I um I cut my teeth there. I started my career in professional services and in the assurance space with KPMG too. So very much similar experience. And I think um, there's some great things about starting your career in an environment like that. You get to learn a lot from some really talented people and um, really subject matter experts in, in a lot of different areas. Uh, what I think um, was striking about moving from an environment like that to a startup environment was the framing of, I, th I think you used the word risk. And I really liked uh, like that word because the risk that you deal with day to day in a really established company is very different than the risk you deal with in a startup where it's like, hey, the risk might be if we don't solve this business problem, we don't have a company in six months or 12 months or, or two years versus like, hey, this could cost us a lot of money and be a little bit damaging to our reputation. And so we're more concerned about optimizing risks or responding to acute risk versus in a startup, I think you're focused more on existential risk. Like, hey, we we have a big vision. We need, we're we not exactly sure how we're going to do it um, or solve it, but we uh, we absolutely need to focus all hands on solving this business problem versus uh, versus optimization. Yeah, Riley, that's that's such a good point. And I think that's probably why something like short toes may be such a foreign concept in the professional services. I mean, you could make an argument that the sort of the tower-esque hierarchical professional services model is almost built on the idea of long toes explicitly avoiding uh, stepping on people's toes, doing something without perhaps client permission or, yeah. uh, you know, getting an estimate just wrong or maybe taking initiative uh, when you shouldn't. I mean, one thing that is so interesting from, uh, I will say, like a, a legal background in, in big firm context is on the one hand, taking initiative is rewarded. But on the other hand, it's typically rewarded only if you get it right. And if you get it wrong, uh, taking initiative was definitely the wrong thing to do. So you end up in this world where you kind of have um, a very small number of superstars who take initiative and get it right almost all the time. 
And then everybody else potentially have enormously competent people who can and should be trained into uh, you know, client-facing, outstanding thinkers and executors and partners. Uh, but because of the structure of risk-taking, uh, you just don't stick your neck out there. Uh, contrast that with startup land. And gosh, if, if you have a long-toes culture, it's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you, you know, runway, potentially. You might put yourself in a position of maybe the person who actually has the possible solution doesn't even speak up because they don't feel like it's... Uh, in their jurisdiction, so to speak. Uh, so I, I'd, I'd love to hear you say a little bit more about why short toes is just so important, maybe to your own day-to-day -day work or, or you know, to, to a startup. Why does it matter so much? Um, and what are the dangers that you see of a startup that doesn't uh, adopt a short toes mindset? Yeah, so we can't, I think this goes back to what I was saying before. You can't afford to have many people rowing in different directions in the, in startup land. Everybody has to be, um, everybody has to be rowing in the same direction. And that's a, granted, that's a lot easier to accomplish with a startup when you have 50 people, 20 people, 100 people in the early stages. You kind of can choose who's in, in your nation, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, versus like, some of, the, some of the professional services firms, law firms and stuff that, that you may, or we started our careers with, they might have hundreds or thousands of people, I think. I'm not sure how many um, global employees KPMG has, but it, it's just a reality that yeah. things aren't rowing in the same direction all the time. So I think short toes is about cutting through those little nuances to just have everybody on the same page. And that can, I guess, it means it's okay or that we can agree to disagree and then move on, right? Without without hanging our hats on something as well. So, so less time spent worrying about what's happened in the past and more time spent solving problems for the future. Yeah, that completely makes sense. You know, as we're having this conversation and I'm listening to you, I'm realizing that uh, a listener could be forgiven for thinking that short toes is just something that happens uh, in any old startup. But you yep. and I both know that that's really not the case. You know, like any anything relating to culture, um, culture will happen one way or another. But if you want a particular culture, you probably have to be really intentional about it. So how does uh, a startup like Levels sort of promote and ingrain these cultural concepts of assuming good faith and uh, short toes? Like, how does a startup go about it? Yeah, I think um, I think we have a fairly good framework here at Levels, but it, it is, it's important to define things like this explicitly. So saying, hey, we have short toes. Uh, if somebody's going to solve a problem or has a good solution, it doesn't matter where it comes from. Um, at what level of the company, what function, whatever, uh, we're happy to get the best possible solution um, from whatever avenue it comes from. Uh, so I think defining that is, uh, is really important. And then living that definition is the most important thing. And so I think that it's easy to say that. And I think, I don't think I've ever seen a startup where that wasn't that the importance of just solving the problem wasn't really front and center to what's happening. Um, but I think the reinforcing function for that is really tone at the top and leadership. Um, it, it's one thing to have a founder or a leader that is, is saying like, hey, we have short toes, but not taking input from everyone, anyone, <laughs> never admitting that they're wrong. Uh, and it's another thing to have somebody who has uh, very much able to take solutions from wherever they come from, give credit to um, where where a solution is coming from and and really live and breathe that short toes. I think that um, that really helps the short toes concept uh, be effective when you live in and breathe it top to bottom in your organization. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, Riley, you and I talk about this idea of tone at the top a lot. I think it's something that 
it's easy to really buy into this when yeah. you've had the experience of the tone at the top being maybe unhelpful uh, at times, or especially when you actually get to see and live something that looks a little bit like a, a, a mismatch. You know, people are so much, uh, we're, we're pattern seekers and we really think about incentives in our daily yeah. actions. And if the tone at the top is inconsistent, then the incentives are definitely uh, moving away from actually adopting a short toes mindset or assume good faith or whatever cultural um, item is critical to the company. If the tone at the top isn't there, you're just creating, you know, so many bad incentives, not only the bad incentive of ultimately making it hard for people to adopt that cultural virtue, but you're creating the vice of folks at the company observing inconsistency and when you are actively inconsistent within your company, you kind of take, it's, it's a little bit like opening up Pandora's box, right? Where if you're inconsistent about a few big things, it's really hard to get the team to kind of rally around the flag, you know, not only when, yeah. when things are going okay, but when things are, are tough. So I uh, couldn't yeah. agree more, tone up the top. Um, so Riley, thinking about this kind of transition that you and I have both made from being in sort of professional services to moving into uh, the startup space. What, what do you feel like are the, the core skills or even the skills differences that have helped you be sort of successful in the startup space um, as compared to being successful in professional services? Yeah, I think it's just having that bias to action, Zach. Uh, so you need to... Um, get things done. And it's very different from working with a, a company that's very well established that has processes and systems that you don't even know you're relying on them, but they make your day to day easier. In a startup, those things don't exist yet. And they need to be developed. And sometimes they sometimes you can use an out of the box concept for for building a process. Sometimes it has to be like suited to the organization itself. But what you can't do is just expect a process to be there for you. So you really need to roll up your sleeves, do the thing um, that needs to be done, and then figure out how to, um, how to solve that problem. So if you're coming in as a finance, um, finance person into a startup, you can't be like, Oh, I'm going only going to review and comment on the financials because you're going to get a set of financials that are either inaccurate or you're not even going to have them at that point to work with. So you need to um, you need to kind of have that roll up the sleeves uh, mentality and and dig into work, but you also can't get lost in it too. So you have to be a little bit allergic to doing the work, such that you want to build a process make yourself redundant in that process and be able to hand it off to somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. Very much same, I would say, on the legal side. You know, big companies have, as you say, so many processes and, and what the work can be like on the professional service side is sometimes analogous to creating work product, setting it on the company's conveyor belt, so to speak. And it's going to move through their system and eventually reach their destination because there are processes and systems along the way that will take that work product, whatever it is, and get it where uh, the company wants it to go. There is no conveyor belt in startup land. I mean, you, you really are taking that thing and you're either directly handing it to the person who's going to carry it the next leg or you're taking it all the way there yourself. And as you said, if, it, if, if you or someone else doesn't do it, it will not get done. There's not magical process for everything. You know, what I think about too on, on the legal side, a huge difference is it is increasingly true that working in a large law firm means either early or later in your career, deeply specializing, uh, becoming really a go-to expert, uh, probably in something fairly narrow. And, and I can say that the, the most significant difference for me in transitioning to the startup space is while I've been able to benefit a little bit from some of the things I've become a little bit expert in, most of my work uh, is having to learn something completely new. And uh, without that bias to action that 
you describe, I think my work would probably be impossible. I mean, it would be very easy for a certain kind of lawyer to look at the work of an attorney in a startup and say, oh, well, I don't know how to do that. Somebody else should do it. I don't know how to do that. Somebody else should do it. And, and you could almost pick up every item on your plate and have that response. Uh, is that something that you have experienced as well? And, and what has been your mindset in terms of tackling that specialist versus generalist transition? Yeah, well, um, it, it's an interest. It's a bit of a dance, too, because you can't afford to be an expert in everything, as you've correctly pointed out. But also the buck stops with you. Right. Uh, and, and you you have to be an expert in, in a sense. <laughs> so you're, you're kind of caught in between those two roles. And it, it's a funny place to be. But I think you, you have to look at some of these things, too in the context of where the company's at, right? What, which one of these things is an existential risk um, to the company achieving its goals? So which problems are you being an expert in going to contribute to the company, um, the company being its best, the best version of itself? Um, Things that enable other other people and experts within the company to do their job uh, are really existential. Like people related things are actually really important in the startup, and and I think you end up focusing a lot of your time on on those type of things. Uh, some of the there's a lot of risk regulation, infinite complexity out from state to state, and those type of things are. You know, never in a thousand years could you be an expert across that bandwidth. So it's finding the right support in some of those areas, which maybe aren't existential to the company operating really well. I think it is important to um, those type of things can be handed off, but you have to be kind of a enough expertise to know, to be able to see the risks coming at you or, or the right timing to address things. Yeah, Riley, lots of lots of great things to to tease out there. So on, on your first point, you know, being a generalist does not mean not being an expert at anything. There are absolutely things that we still need to either have or quickly develop expertise around. Uh, the second part of your um, sort of description of the generalist role uh, in a company like ours is uh, judgment ends up being one of the most valuable things you can you can have really uh, the the judgment to understand when something is you know existential risk or uh, medium or or low risk the ability to to really categorize risk the ability to understand what the company ought to be paying attention to now versus potentially later on uh, the judgment to understand when even if you do have expertise on something. The right approach may not to be to spend a whole bunch of your time or somebody else's time tackling that thing. That may be a matter that is better handled at a later stage of the company, and it wouldn't be a good use of your own time today. And, and you know that's something that uh, that I'm often struck by in this work versus my work in the large law firm is how I think about my own time. It's 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 yeah. very different. You know, uh, I, I think about law firm life and law firms can have varying degrees of being either very busy or or fairly slow depending on what firm you're at depending on the season depending on what the market is like but you typically have something like an hours target and i would say most attorneys are plus or minus a few hundred hours of that target but one thing that is definitely true is most folks have at least a little bit of bandwidth uh, so the work that comes in if you're uh you know an associate for example at a big law firm you have work come in, it fills up your plate. And at some point, uh, your plate might get you know full, which is to say you really don't have more hours to do it. But you spend a fair bit of your time with at least some bandwidth. And the idea of work hitting your desk and you kick the can and don't do it is completely foreign. <laughs> I mean, that's like yeah. like the, the, the idea of reaching out to a partner and saying, oh, yeah, I, I know you gave me this work, but I, I've hit my I've hit my 50 hours for this week. I I really just can't do that. You know, maybe you can hand the work off, but sometimes everybody's busy and that's it. And you still have to figure it out. Contrast yeah. that to, uh, you know, at least the way that my plate looks at levels. And this is probably true of most folks at startups. 
my plate is constantly overflowing with work. If my goal were get every item of work that I can conceive of done, I would, I would literally never be done working. So, so much of the work is it's not finding room on the plate. It's again, judgment and triaging work and deciding, Hey, what actually is the focus? What needs to get done versus what may not be a priority today or even a month from now, or there might even be things that you kick that can almost indefinitely. How how do you think about that? Yeah, I think just to add to that too, Zach, sometimes it takes a good dosage of humility to say (laughs) something's not important too. Like when you're a technical expert in an area or maybe have some, some experience in an area to say, hey, like, this is something we need to worry about, but maybe not right now. It it takes a little bit of humility from a professional services standpoint. So you need to add, I think, that as a skill to the mix. And and conversely to that, too, when you're dealing with a technical issue or something that needs to be solved, a lot of the times in, in startup land, the pressure is so focused on solving that business problem that adding that there's a lot of resistance to adding complexity to that problem, regulatory complexity or things that are just like make the uh, solution a little bit more annoying for everyone. So you also have to have that that backbone to stand up and say, no, this is important now and and we need to solve this. So having that kind of give and take uh, doing that dance between the humility of like being able to say your work isn't that important in a specific area and also being able to like knowing the time and place to stand up and say like, hey, no, this is a problem we have to solve right now or it's going to turn into a bigger issue. Oh, man, that is that is such a good articulation of kind of like the core challenge of being um, being an asset in these roles in the startup context. Right. It's kind of turned into a trope now. Legal can be the department of no I think many people have heard that and it's a little bit boring to think about, yeah. but like where it comes from, you know, it's, it's real. I mean, uh, on the finance side or on the legal side, if we overdo it, we can really stymie the growth of a company or in the context of legal, if I put my foot down on some absurd thing or assumed there or decided there was much more risk perhaps than there actually is, I could functionally kill the company. Yeah. And I think that's a real challenge for lawyers, you know, we are in this space of cross every T, dot every I. You know, that's that's the model. And then coming to uh, a startup, having to be comfortable with the idea that sometimes the best you can do is help the company be a good faith actor, right? Yeah. Centering everyone's work around being a good faith actor, trying to do uh, right every time you can. But sometimes perfection is, is quite literally... Uh, impossible. And and that's yeah. a, that's a big pill to swallow for yeah. folks like us in, uh, in it started out in industries where you're literally getting paid for perfection. Yeah. I, I have a question for you on this front. It's, it's maybe a little bit tangential, but very much in the theme of humility and short toes and, and building a, a professional function. And something that I think is really specific to, uh, legal in itself is, how do you use those values in that construct to create a safe space for people to ask the questions that they need to ask of you? So you have to create this space for people to raise issues that might represent future problems, but you have limited bandwidth yourself. And so how do you create that? How do you create that space where, where legal's an open door um, in a startup? It is, it is really tough. And I think what it comes down to is really clear. And I would go so far as to say fun, if possible, communication around issues. I mean, I, I hesitate to say it, but I actually think there is value in trying to communicate my own excitement about uh, kind of sticky legal issues. I mean, yeah. I think, you know, Riley, you, you uh, recently posted something internal about sort of being in front of a spreadsheet, being your happy place. And, <laughs> one thing, and I loved it. And, you know, one thing that I was struck by is everybody else loved it too. And, and that kind of stuff really comes through. Um, what I really want is I want people to say, hey, I wonder what Zach thinks about this. Not, we should run this past legal. 
right? Because yeah. those are two completely different yeah. things. If, if, if people are a little bit curious about what the legal angle might be on something, then there's a good likelihood that they're going to reach out as opposed to being kind of afraid to run something by legal because it might get shut down. You know, one thing that I think about, Riley, is speaking of, this is, this is in the tone at the top sort of bucket and being consistent. On the rare occasion that something is brought to me or I become aware of something that is potentially a problem, it is so important that I take a beat and think really carefully about how I do point out uh, what's wrong. Because it is easy for me to forget how totally scary legal stuff is to yeah. anyone who's a non-lawyer, right? I mean, legal is just super scary. It's, it's a big unknown. We know that there are rules that feel like gotcha rules. And if I were to respond to something that maybe we need to do a little bit differently in a way that communicates this was bad, someone's in trouble, then I've really failed the company, right? Uh, yeah. Because what I'm doing in that moment is conveying it is possible to really do wrong and Zach is going to whatever, call you out on it. Um, you're going to create problems, et cetera. And that's just not the right way to approach it, right? If, um, yeah. if something needs to be changed, the right approach is to say, oh, really interesting. Let's talk through this. We might need to do this a little bit differently. Let's brainstorm it, right? Something that conveys, I am still on your team. There isn't some yeah. invisible, bad legal line. But you do that wrong one or two times and you do become the legal department instead yeah. of, you know, Zach, who's fun to talk to legal stuff. Uh, so that's, I think, my best answer is, I think this is, uh, I think there is so much more to an attorney's job that is communication focused and uh, thinking about being an, an in the trenches team member. Uh, and, and if you have become the legal department, especially as a department of one, you've yep. probably done something wrong. I, uh, I can really identify with that because I've made the mistake uh, building a company being a little too closed door. Um, I think that I, I really, that's something I've really admired from you in working with you and learning from you is just your approach to dealing with those type of problems, um, and how you, how you work with people to find solutions. Um, I, I think that's, that's really exceptional and something a, any lawyer or, or quite frankly, finance, uh, corporate role in a startup could learn from. Or, or make note of. I think that's really important. I think it's it's also important to note too that that culture is very pervasive across levels of like solving the problem versus like stomping on somebody uh, <laughs> for coming forward Lately. with an issue. And so that makes it um, just in my experience, it makes it much easier that that whole company experience makes it much easier for these types of issues to get solved, brought to the forefront, dealt with, solved, and, and put behind us um, in a way that we can continue moving forward. And so that I think that that's another pump to the the culture bucket of like how important culture is to solving these problems and, and building a company in this way. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, all of this has the added benefit of it makes work a lot more pleasant, a lot more fun. I mean, I think anyone listening to this can probably tell that the workplace we're describing versus the professional services workplace, naturally, it's going to have a different, a different feel. Yeah. Uh, working in this way is, is really super enjoyable because we still get to work on really hard stuff. But yep. these cultural norms, they're also kind of, you know, I view them as, as guardrails for me. They're, they're a reminder that yep. these rules are here to make sure that not only are we, you know, optimally effective in our work, but we're also gracious to each other. Yep. We're, we're respecting the hard work that we're all putting in. Uh, it just makes work a lot nicer. And uh, something that Ms our head of ops has uh, mentioned to me before, it's a pretty rare situation where we run into a problem that needs to be solved absolutely immediately, like same day. Like yeah. they happen, but very, very rarely. Usually we do have time to take a beat, to talk through it. Uh, yeah. And 
making sure that we remember that, you know, that's kind of the gut check that can keep us from having that, uh, you know, drop the hammer kind of reaction. It's so yeah. much better to tackle these from a position of collaboration. And it's almost never the case that we yeah. have 10 minutes to solve something that, that might justify being, you know, rude or brusque yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And those that that is really important and it has to be weighed it has to be balanced against that bias to action and yep. that um, startup mentality that we were talking about earlier. But absolutely thinking through a problem carefully, um, at least identifying whether it's a big issue or not quickly mm -hmm. can sometimes help that. OK, this could be a big issue or like, hey, this is like almost certainly not a big issue. Uh <laughs> It, the, that categorization or that triage can happen pretty quickly with most things. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, so, so Riley, we, we, we've sort of talked about professional services in the, uh, in the firm context, you know, and then the yeah. work that we do here. I, I guess I, I wonder what your thoughts are in terms of, you know, lots of people are interested, I think, in moving in-house or into a startup. What are, what are the things that you like when you're when you're mentoring people or when you're talking to others, what are the things that you encourage people to consider when they're thinking about making that switch? Yeah, I think we've used the word risk um, and risk. I, we're using it in a fun way. I feel <laughs> like we're not using it in that way of like, let's mitigate all risk. But we're talking right. about we're talking about like understanding that things um, cannot or might not go according to plan. And the likelihood of that in a startup that things don't go according to plan is nearly a certainty. Right. Uh, and so if you're somebody that is okay with that reality, um, is okay that something might come at you that you're not sure how to solve or whatever, um, that's like, that's a good fit indicator for startup, if you're okay with risk and uncertainty, um, that may, can make startups a really fun place to be. If, on the other hand, you like having that certainty and that consistency and stuff across the board, having a, a higher certainty about what's going to happen each day, um, I think if that's something that you enjoy, probably uh, startup might be maybe... I don't want to say it's not for you, but I want to say that that's something that is going to have to be or will change a little bit when you join a startup is just that certainty of the day to day or certainty of priorities or or whatever it is. Those things are always changing. Um, so I think that <laughs> that dynamic is one thing. But uh, one thing about about the startup space is is with risk comes reward and reward in a couple different areas. Like I can't think of anything more rewarding than working on and potentially solving a societal level problem, like the metabolic health crisis or Absolutely. Um, there's all kinds of, of um, there's all kinds of pro startups solving really, really important problems. Um, and so like the opportunity the reward of being able to work on something like that, that is changing the status quo in a good way is just like the best thing about being in the startup space. And I think the other reward that comes with that is that that can also be solving a key problem in a big way can be very financially rewarding. And so the opportunity to be able to work for equity as well as as a, a salary comp um, gives you the opportunity to scale yourself in in a different way too. And so I think I think that risk reward aspect you have to be excited about it. But I think that's the really the the right way to think about joining a startup. And then once you've joined, just diving in headfirst and and being all into it. Yeah, I, everything that you just said really resonates. And it is such a different from how many people think about, you know, working a company. I mean, after you're in startups for a little while, I think it's easy to forget how strange a concept for many people, things like 
a runway is. I mean, yeah. I think I, I think I mentioned the concept of a runway to a uh, a litigator a little while back in in a big firm, and they asked, "Oh, what's what's a runway?" I didn't do a good job of uh, giving context. Yeah. And, oh well, you know, in in a nutshell, our, our, your runway is how long you have until your company literally runs out of money. And as a concept, I think for people who are used to big companies, that is that is terrifying, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, um, it is often the case that people in larger companies, as soon as they smell like a bad quarter, they're getting nervous, right? And yeah. we're just talking like an earnings quarter. We're not talking existential threat. And yet yeah. star uh, startups live in that sort of existential risk space. You know, we know the statistics, you know, 70 or 80% of, you know, series C or series A companies uh, don't make it. You really do have to be very comfortable. But as you say, uh, the rewards, both intellectually, uh, emotionally, just in terms of how stimulating the work is, uh, and potentially financially, uh, can be can be huge. So you mentioned you mentioned equity, and one thing that you and I have definitely had some conversations on is sort of the the ways to use equity that are kind of you know good and ethical and motivating uh, versus how equity. Uh, can be used, whether intentionally or not, in a way that isn't totally honest. So let's tease that out a little bit. So maybe first, could you just quickly remind us, you know, what is equity compensation and when does an employee get it and, and why? Yeah, so um, equity compensation is really something that you are earning shares of a company uh, as you... Uh, work through your equity vesting period or whatever. So typically when you join a startup, you're, you'll be um, granted an option to purchase X number of shares at a fixed price. And you'll be able to, you won't be able to exercise that right right away because it will be tied to your employment with the company. So after a certain number of years or a certain number of periods of employment, that equity will become vested and you'll be able to purchase shares for a fixed price. Um, what a great thing about that is um, from a compensation perspective is you get to purchase the shares at a fixed price, but if you're able to grow the company 10, 20, 100 times larger or in some like very large public company um, context like an Amazon or a Facebook or, or a large tech company thousands of times uh, from, from the early stages, those companies have grown. Uh, that um, means you might have to pay a dollar for a share that's worth a hundred dollars or a thousand. Um, and so it doesn't take too many shares <laughs> to create wealth for yourself um, on the equity side. So that uh, can potentially be significantly more rewarding than um, than just taking a, a set salary, so that's you, you can end up on an IPO or or later stage uh, exit, which we know is uncertain. But a lot of early employees can end up um, making millions of dollars from equity in companies and startups. Yeah, and you know there there is nothing quite like having a meaningful stake in the company that you're working at and knowing that if you can play a role in helping that company become successful, you can quite literally reap benefits yeah. commensurate with that success, which is which yeah. is really remarkable and very different from the pure salary mentality yeah. that, you know, there are things like bonuses that can reward us doing our very best work, but none of that really yeah. compares on an emotional or a potential rewards level to actual equity. Yeah. Uh, ownership. It's like well, buying a lottery ticket when you have some influence on the outcome of the lottery. That's a really great point. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of the perfect analogy and maybe a bit of a segue into uh, how are some of the ways that maybe employees that receive equity may not be getting the great deal that yeah. they go into it believing they're yeah. getting. So I'll frame this a little bit too, and I'll, I'll also caveat with it with the fact that i'm i'm biased obviously towards people great people joining startups mm -hmm. and, and wanting to join startups and so i think that generally um equity should reward people for taking that risk uh 
we want to have great people working on problems that make the world a better place. Um, so as a startup community, we should reinforce the fair equity compensation as much as possible and, and allow people to, to reap the rewards where they've contributed to a really um, significant outcome or, or significant change. So, and this is something that's really hard. Like if you're joining a startup and you're like, what is the equity worth? How should I value it? Um, it's not really easy to find the answer. And really there, there isn't an answer because a lot of times it hinges on your own personal risk tolerance and how much you value the problem that you're working on solving. So those, those two things make a like calculating a dollar value or assigning a dollar value to equity really hard. But I think having some standardized view, like some founder can come in and say, oh, I've given you a million dollars of equity, but I valued our company with $1,000 of revenue at a trillion dollars. And that's how I've calculated the equity. Um, and and you can have another company that's valuing their company at a billion dollars at the same level or five million. So all else equal, you want to enter a company that's providing, valuing your equity at the most practical representation of how much the company's worth today. Um. Yeah, Riley, you, you, you've touched on uh, a lot and this is really great stuff. And I, I can speak from personal experience that some of this can be really uh, confusing. This is, you know, I, I was a litigator before joining Levels and I did not have experience or a whole lot of knowledge about how equity worked. And so to tease out a couple aspects of what you're talking about, you know, first, when an employee at a private company, like a startup, uh, receives equity, it's actually pretty challenging to cash that out at any point. Uh, there are only a few ways that it can happen. The most common is way down the road when that company is successful and actually goes public such that they are able to sell their shares on the open market. There are a couple of other ways that it's possible for uh, an employee to experience liquidity, which is to say to turn uh, whatever equity they own into money. But those don't always happen. And I think it's fair to say that they're few and far between. Um, it's, it's, it's often an all or nothing proposal where, you know, either your equity will go to zero because the company ends up, yeah. ended up not being a success, or at some point down the road, the company will have success and then it's a big hit. So lever number one is maybe or maybe not, it'll be worth anything. And then yeah. the other point that you touched on is valuations are really tricky and it is very possible for the founder or the person who's sort of valuing the equity to be overly optimistic or maybe not even overly optimistic. Just maybe, maybe they truly, truly, truly believe in the company, but the likelihood of it actually hitting that, you know, multi-billion or trillion dollar valuation is ultimately very, very slim. And it's difficult entering into the startup space to to know, you know, what is a fair valuation. So I think it's fair to say that at any level, when you join a startup, you're really relying upon the founding team to act in good faith yeah. when they are valuing equity as a compensation tool. Yeah. Yeah. And there's not really um, a hard line of regulation that forces people to be good actors here. Like there is legal agreements and stuff, but there's nothing in... Um, in public companies and stuff, we have like false and misleading financial information and forecasts and, and things that public companies have to abide by. In startups, um, those don't really exist when you're assigning a value to the equity of, of your shares. And so I think that I think that it's probably a good thing that it's not harder than it is legally to issue shares because that would be a disincentive to doing it. Um, but there is not a hard incentive to act in the right faith uh, or in good faith when you're assigning value to equity. So, yeah, it is such a challenge. I mean, there are there remain rules against certainly lying to your employees or future employees, uh, but those are 
Those are difficult things to prove. You don't see a whole lot of lawsuits out there that are successful where someone says, hey, you know, this private company founder overvalued the equity that I was issued. Those are unlikely to succeed because you yep. really have to prove that the founder genuinely believed something different and knew they were lying. And that's yep. just not the reality. Yep. You know, people often sincerely believe that they're acting uh, in good faith, even while their risk appetite might be different. They might be more optimistic than an employee who may be actually taking a personal financial risk by joining a startup versus yep. Uh, an established company. So the dynamics there are very interesting. Uh, as you say, there aren't very many regulations. And it's one of those things that underscores how important, circling all the way back around, having a great tone at the top uh, is having a culture that uh, puts integrity and transparency up front. I think a lot about when I joined Levels from you know my my very secure large law firm job, what are the things that made me feel confident in making the jump? And I certainly loved the Levels product, still do, very excited about the mission that we are on. But at the end of the day, the thing that allowed me to make the jump was speaking to so many people who were clearly high integrity people. And I feel very grateful that uh, yeah. every person that I spoke to who left me with a really good impression of things like assume good faith, short toes, yep. tone at the top. Uh, that's, that's been true. And, and so if I were giving one piece of advice to someone leaving like a big law firm to go uh, in-house in general, but especially to a startup, I would say, uh, listen to your gut, ask a lot of questions yep. and look for good faith actors. That's where you want to be uh, in any context. Yeah, I think that's a, a good point too, Zach. And on that front, you want to ask questions too. So if you're asking questions, Pay attention to how the response comes through too. Because if if you feel bad for asking the question after having asked the question, or like somebody brushes something off as a bad question or not important, that's probably a good red flag to think about um, when you're when you're thinking about joining a startup. If somebody doesn't take the time to explain something like equity to you in an understandable way. Don't assume that you're the dumb person for not understanding or be accountable to yourself to follow that through. And if something doesn't feel right, um, then it, it's, it's probably not. Like you said, trust your gut. <laughs>